The Anton Savage Show with Nifty Business on News Talk. A resident dietitian, Sarah Kyo, is with us with her expert advice. Sarah, good morning. Morning. How are you? I'm good. Any thoughts on RTE? Do you want to weigh I'm in? I'm stay out of it for the moment. <laughs> I'm going to stick to the nutrition. Now, we've had a couple of questions about, I think, is the technical term hypo or hyperglycemia, where you get ups and downs in, in blood sugar. So to give you a couple, what did the expert make of the new glucose spike supplement that has come on the market? Another, should I be worried about glucose spikes? In other words, normal increases in blood glucose after eating. First of all, how do you know without a finger prick that you've got a glucose spike? Well, you know, this one has the heart broken on dietitians across the country and the world at the oh, moment. Good. So, um, let's we'll go back to a little bit of the biology. When you eat, your food is digested and any glucose, but also amino acids and everything else, comes out of your gut into your blood. So those levels will increase in your blood. And that has to happen. That's totally normal. It's how the nutrition gets from your gut to your cells. It goes into your blood, your blood transports it, and then it goes low again. So to have an increase in your blood glucose after eating is completely normal. This idea that it's now called a glucose spike and we're all supposed to be worried about it and we're all supposed to be taking supplements is just somebody trying to make money like they always are. Now, if you have diabetes, that's a totally separate thing. So someone with diabetes will have an increase in blood glucose after eating that's generally higher than normal, but crucially stays high. For everybody else, your blood glucose will go up after eating, but within two hours, it comes back down to the kind of the, what we call the fasted level. And that's okay. So diabetes, it's separate. I'm talking about that. But what's happened now is in the last few years, there's fantastic technology for measuring blood glucose. So you put a little device on the top of your arm, it links up to your phone and you have an app. So now what people have done is, oh, we should all be wearing this. And now you can look at it on your phone and scare yourself silly all day long about your blood glucose. What we call, they call them spikes. And it's like, seriously, would you just breathe? If you don't have diabetes, you literally do not need to be worried about this. Like there's some rare medical conditions where sometimes you might need to monitor blood, blood glucose and there's diabetes. Well, Outside now, hold that, on one moment. Stop. Well, hold on one moment. I was led to believe that if you spent your life living on jam sandwiches, I'm going a bit far mm. with this, but but bear with me for the purposes of the straw man. That what you got was you got these huge glucose spikes followed by immediate crashes, which gave you a craving for another jam sandwich and you spiralled into obesity. And if you knew all that from your little monitor, you would be able to live a better life. Well, could I tell you this? Do you need to monitor your blood glucose levels to know that living on jam sandwiches isn't going to be healthy? And this is my point. If you actually look at the people who are promoting all this terrifying people about blood glucose, when you look at what they're recommending you to eat, it's normal healthy eating. You know, so guess what? If you drink really rich sugar, soft drinks, your blood glucose goes slightly higher. But still in people who don't have diabetes, it still comes back down. Your blood insulin level, you know, deals with it beautifully. Um, but we know that eating a whole lot of foods that are high in sugar are not good for us. But we don't need to be monitoring our glucose. And what I'm seeing actually is teenagers in, you know, kids, sorry, not even kids, but probably 19, 20, 21, 22 genuinely terrified. I've, I'm in clinics and people are frightened about this. And I'm looking at them going, how have we got to this? At 19 years of age? Oh yeah, well the, the age group that's really into this blood glucose spike terror thing in the under 30s. And that's why oh. I'm really seeing it's quite young. And I, I would just look at it as this is a huge, you know, step into eating disorder territory. Like bad enough that you might count calories or fat, but now you're going to be hooked up to your phone checking your blood glucose. Like seriously, can people just step away? Because as I said, when you look at all the people selling this, they are selling healthy eating. And you can do healthy eating without spending a fortune on blood glucose devices and measuring your blood glucose and worrying about it. And you certainly don't need to take glucose spike supplements. Well, 
This this brings up a, a question which may be in a similar area. Can Sarah recommend, uh, by the way, Sarah Kyo, our, our resident dietitian, is with us. So if you have any questions, um, 53106, can your guest recommend a good probiotic supplement? I get stomach cramps after eating beans and pulses. Now, I know I'm probably wrong, but I'm very suspicious about probiotics. So probiotics have a great role to play. Have they? But, really? But yes, oh. yes, they do. But, but, but they're very popular at the moment and, you know, you can buy about 500 of them. You need to look at research. So the thing about a probiotic, taking a probiotic is like taking a medicine. What are you taking it for? So are you taking a medicine to lower cholesterol? Are you taking it for pain relief? And it's the same with a probiotic. What are you taking it for? What I see people doing is they wander into a shop and they buy the first probiotic they see and they go, great, I'm doing something wonderful. But if you take one, if you've got diarrhea and you're taking one that is supposed to treat constipation, you know what I mean? You can see the difficulty here. So some probiotics have really good research behind them. Some of them have maybe one study to support them. Um, So I would say with probiotics, um, I wouldn't be a huge fan of rushing out to take them. I would kind of recommend them very specifically if I have patients who have maybe irritable bowel syndrome or issues like that. If you have some... I always thought, Sarah, that they were just a big pile of random sort of... No, in fairness, some of them are extraordinarily well studied and really, so you've got ones that are really actually very solid research around helping to support your immune system. There's some very good ones with that. There's some very good ones that help to support things like constipation. Um, There are really good ones there. But what I would say to you is, you know, for me, I'd go in and look at the science, look at what they're specifically used. Like some of them, for example, would actually make things like ulcerative colitis worse. So you don't want to take the wrong one. So I'd say if you're really thinking about a probiotic, you know, go and spend the hour talking to a dietitian and actually see what you want it for. In terms of beans or lentils, if you don't eat them often, you will get a lot of gas when you eat them because your bacteria are not used to them. So when you eat fibre, it comes down into your large bowel and different bacteria will basically metabolise it and those bacteria will produce gas. So if you eat beans regularly, those bacteria, they'll have an increase and then they'll settle back down to normal. So you get a little bit of gas and then it will be normal and then it'll be okay. But if you only do it like once every three months, you are absolutely going to get gas. The second thing is some people are a little more sensitive to the fibres in beans and lentils and sometimes they just need to really limit them. But a probiotic is probably not going to make a big difference there. Text saying, I've recently been told to watch my cholesterol by my doctor. I've learned that the likes of coconut milk are particularly bad for this. Is this right though? The one that amazed me was shrimp. When you look uh, at a shrimp, you think, yeah, you think, he do you no harm. He's a little do you lean no fella. The shrimp Apparently is fine. Oh, no, 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 no. no. I was if, told they were bad for cholesterol. Oh God, no. Oh, so, um, here all right, sorry. Um, <laughs> if you look at, say, 100 grams of shrimp or 100 grams of prawns, they've less cholesterol in them than one egg. So for cholesterol, for most people, the cholesterol that you have in your blood is you eat saturated fat and your body makes cholesterol out of it. So that's where most of it comes from. So it's saturated fat. So unfortunately, things like butter, cream, you know, the nice things, very high in saturated fat, biscuits, cakes and pastries. The coconut milk you mentioned, and I see everyone is throwing this into everything at the moment, but there is a huge amount of saturated fat in a tin of coconut milk. You're probably looking at 66 grams of saturated fat in a tin of coconut milk and the upper limit for a woman is 20 grams. Now, I know you're probably putting that in and serving it up between four people, but if you're doing that regularly, that's one that I see um, with that. And I do have a video on my Instagram account at SarahKyoRD that actually goes into that in a bit more detail if people want to have a look at it. But it's an interesting one because a lot a lot of people are have the idea that this is really healthy. And look, it's lovely. It's nice. I wouldn't say to anyone, stop taking coconut milk. Um, but I wouldn't be putting it into everything. It's a little bit like putting huge amounts of butter into a lot of things. It, it sounds like cholesterol. you should use it like cream. Pretty much. 
yeah. and think of it the same way. Pretty much like a little bit of it. Just, you know, it's, and I mean, it is lovely. You know, a nice Thai green curry with coconut milk in it is gorgeous. But what I'm seeing is people are putting it in their soups at lunchtime and into everything. So maybe just pull it back a little bit. Text asking, are fish oils a waste of money? That was a big no. thing in the sort of 60s, wasn't it? No. That you had to have spoons of cod liver oil. Cod liver oil. And it, mainly they were doing that for vitamin D, actually. You know, they were all taking our vitamin D supplements today. So cod liver oil is very rich in vitamin D. So that's why everyone was being dosed with that years ago, which was a good thing. No, fish oils are brilliant. Now, always food first. If you can actually eat your fish, that's going to be your best. But fish oils contain a really nice omega-3 called EPA. And EPA um, helps to reduce anxiety and depression. And it helps to support memory and concentration and focus. And that's because your brain is 60% fat. Most of the fat in your brain is omega-3. It's another type called DHA. And between EPA and DHA, they do really nice things for your nervous system. They're very much involved in your nervous system. And they're very much involved in conduction of nerves and memory and focus and so on. Now, if you can eat your fish, your salmon mackerel, herring, sardines, they're really rich sources of omega-3s. They're brilliant. Oily stuff. Oily stuff. Now, you get a bit in white fish. It's not as much now, but there's a bit there. Um, But if you never eat fish, um, the fish oil supplement is something that you could think about. Now, I'd rather you did eat the fish because you get your protein and your B vitamins and everything else that's lovely in there. But um, yeah, fish oils can be really useful. Now, the thing about fish oils, though, is it takes about three months to notice anything with them. Um, So nutrition is slow. You know, it's not like taking a medicine where you get quite a quick result. So sometimes people take them for a week and go, these did nothing for me. But would you actually notice? Oh, sorry, I, I don't, but the kind of things that you described where you talk about nerve transmission, that kind of stuff, I would have thought it happens in a way that you don't spot it. People so will notice. What we would see if we do studies looking at particularly EPA and things like anxiety and depression, with around 12 weeks, you can see measurable changes in anxiety and depression in people. You can see measurable changes in memory, focus and concentration. Now, you don't go from like being horrendous to being wonderful. You're not, you know, dancing around the place, but you you can measure changes in even sleep and things like that. And also then fish oils are very important for helping to reduce inflammation in the body. And too much inflammation, which we can just get in the body, is a driver for things like heart disease, cancer, a few other things like that, and some autoimmune diseases. So fish oils in that sense can actually be really helpful. But again, eat your fish. Is there anything that provides what fish oil provides that isn't fish? Not really. You will get another type of omega-3 called ALA and that turns up in plants. So that's your plant omega-3s that you would see in things like linseeds and walnuts. Now they do help to reduce inflammation. They're actually great for lowering cholesterol as well. If someone does have high cholesterol, linseed and flaxseed is brilliant to add into foods. Um, but we don't see quite the same brain benefits from it. Now I would say I'd like to see a little more research before I say they don't do it as such, but we've very solid research about the fish oils from that end of things. Can you ask about the merits of a keto diet. This is living entirely on liver and red meat and uh, stuff, not, isn't it? So basically, um, a keto diet is a very low carbohydrate diet, um, very high fat with what we call moderate amounts of protein. And it was initially developed to treat epilepsy. It's actually a very, very effective treatment for epilepsy. But a side effect of it is you lose a lot of weight on it. Um, it's actually quite hard to keep weight on people who are being treated for. Now, these days we've really good medications for epilepsy, so fewer people need the ketogenic diet. But because of the weight loss, obviously people who want to lose weight look at it as an approach. Now, the one thing I'd say is that most of the people I meet who tell me they're on a ketogenic diet are not. They're on a low-carb diet because a ketogenic diet, you've got to actually get your body to produce a thing called ketones. And that takes about five days of zero of very low carbs to do it. So I was talking to somebody recently and they go, well, you know, I do it for a few days a week and then I take a few days off. And it's like, well, you're not doing keto. Um, but as I said, long term, it's quite high in fat. So we can't, depending on how it's done. 
is we can see higher cholesterol levels. And, you know, some of the studies in the medical journals in the States now are looking, particularly if people, if the fat they're choosing is very high in saturated fat, we are seeing blockages in carotid arteries in 35-year-olds, which you wouldn't see except in 70-year-olds. Of now, all of the arteries again, to have a blockage, of all that's of the not arteries. the best. Now, I said, it's, they are cases coming out. It's certainly not a big study on everybody's on a ketogenic diet. And obviously, you know, as a dietitian, when I would have done this with patients with epilepsy years ago, you're very careful about what fats, that they're low in saturated fat, that we're really being careful about how they do it. So from weight loss point of view, essentially what happens is you, you eat fewer calories on a ketogenic diet, and so you lose weight. Is that because effectively there's a limit to how much steak you can put in yourself before well, you go you, no Now more. you're confusing it with a high protein diet. So a ketogenic diet is not very high in protein either. Okay. So your most of your calories dust? are coming from fat, fat, lots of oils and fats. That's why it's actually, it's actually hard to follow. People actually so cheese. find it. So you might do things like cheese, but you'd be adding loads of oil into, into things. Like you'd be doing lots of green veg with a big, heavy oil dressing, you know, those kind of things with it. Yeah, your Oof. face. That's what I'm saying. People who tell to drink keto are not. Um, so it's 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 quite a different diet. Um, but year, if you match a ketogenic diet with a low fat diet or just a reducing calorie diet, after a year, everybody loses the same amount of weight. The keto is a little faster at the start, but as a year long, what we find is there's no real difference after 12 months. So it's kind of find what suits you and go with that. And is that because whether you go low fat, low calorie, low carb, whatever else it is, in essence, what you're doing is reducing calorie exactly, intake across 100%. all of them. And that's all of these diets, whether you're doing intermittent fasting or any of that, you're just reducing calories. It's a finding the way that suits you, though. Um, two texts. One, one, it proves that you've got a disciple. One says that somebody still needs to be won over. The disciple. <laughs> How much oily fish should we eat per week? Thank you. So um, we would say one serving of oily fish a week, possibly up to two, and then some white fish as well. So there's a little bit of question about heavy metals in oily fish. Now, I'd say it's a bit of a question. So currently we'd say maybe one to two servings a week, but not to go over that. That question hopefully will be answered by the European Food Safety Authority in the next few months, um, because lots of other countries do eat a lot more oily fish, but white fish you can kind of eat as much as you like. And then one that returns us to where we started and proves that some people are still resistant. Does consuming vinegar shortly before eating reduce spikes in blood sugar? It does actually. Does it? So yes, but God, would you want to? Um, so what it is, is if you put acid into your, so an acidic food with uh, foods you're eating, there is a slightly lower raise in blood glucose when you eat it. Now, the studies have all been done in people with diabetes. So if you don't have diabetes, it may not make a difference. Now, I'd say it probably does a little bit. So what what you're saying, these people are talking about the glucose spikes tend to say, oh, well, you need to take some vinegar in a salad or in a drink or something before you eat. Or lemon juice. Yeah, well, you know, apple cider vinegar. You know, people who do that. And, oh, yeah. Um, so there's a slight, but again, if you don't have diabetes, will you please just stop worrying about your blood, blood glucose and get on with your life? On that note, Sarah, thank you so much. That is Sarah Kyo, our uh, resident dietitian. And if you want to find out more, she is also the founder of Eat Well. And you can fling that into Google and you can get hold of her uh, through that. The Anton Savage Show with Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine on News Talk.